Well, good morning and welcome to Sojourn Church. So glad that you are uh, here today. It's good to gather with you each and every week to open up God's Word and just see what His Word has to say to us. And so I'm excited to jump into that this morning. But before we do that, let's uh, just spend some time in prayer. Uh, Father, we are grateful for our time together today that we can uh, open up your word. I pray that as we look at these stories in Exodus that for some of us are very familiar, maybe things we heard as a child, stories we remember in a Sunday school class or have seen portrayed in a movie. Lord, I pray that no matter whether these things are familiar to us or unfamiliar, maybe hearing them for the first time, that you would still use these things that you have put in your holy word to encourage us and challenge us this morning. Lord, we desire to see you, to exalt you in our life, to worship you in all things. And so I pray that as we listen to your word, that you would draw our hearts to you to worship you in every part of our life. So we give you this time now. We want you to be glorified, and we pray for your spirit to work. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you need a Bible this morning, go ahead and raise your hand. We are going to be back in the book of Exodus this morning, and so love for you to be able to read along with us. Uh, We're going to be in about four chapters this morning, so love for you to be able to read along and look at those as we dig into the Word. And as always, if you don't actually own a Bible, we'd love to give that to you as a gift just so you can have God's Word and be able to read that throughout the week. So just keep your hand up if you need a Bible and somebody will find you to be able to give you one of those. Have you ever had a time in your life when you've asked for something and what you received was was more than expected? Maybe in the positive or in the negative. You you got more than you bargained for. I was thinking about this this week and it it brought to mind the story that maybe you heard that happened, I think, sometime last year about a little girl who was in a children's hospital in L.A. uh, dealing with cancer. And her mom put a sign up in her window that said, send pizza, room 4112. And someone driving by, I guess, saw this sign in the window, took a picture and put it out on social media. And before they knew it, pizzas were arriving at the hospital, being delivered to this little girl's room. Before they knew it, 20 pizzas have arrived and there were more on the way. And finally, the hospital got to the place and said, hey, hold on. We don't need any more pizzas. This three-year-old can't eat that much pizza. Or maybe you've had it in the negative sense where you've been bored at work and you you ask your boss, you say, you know, I need a little bit more work. I just feel a little bit bored. And so they see that as an opportunity to back the dump truck up and just dump everything on you. And now you're not just not bored. You're completely overwhelmed by what you've asked for. Well, as we continue on in Exodus today, we see that Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, he asks a rhetorical question, not really looking for an answer, but he not only gets an answer, but gets way more than he bargained for. Moses, as we looked at last week, has been called and sent by God to represent God to Pharaoh, to tell Pharaoh to let God's people go. And we see that throughout these few chapters that Moses is reluctant to go. He's fearful of Pharaoh. And decidedly so. I mean, he is just Moses. And what is he going to do to go stand before the most powerful man in the world at the time and demand that he let his slaves go? So God in his grace says to Moses, no, you will go. I will be with you. And I'll send your brother Aaron with you to help you. And in chapter 5, we find this first interaction with Pharaoh. Moses has his attention and he goes before him and chapter five, verses one and two say this, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who's Yahweh 
that I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I do not know Yahweh, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Pharaoh says sneeringly, Yahweh, never heard of him, don't care, doesn't matter. No, I will not let your people go. That's a ridiculous request. There's no reverence in Pharaoh's heart towards this God. In fact, he's thinking, why should, a, why should I fear a God who identifies himself with people who are enslaved? God's identifying himself with these enslaved people. And Pharaoh's saying, if he's the God of these enslaved people and they're still in slavery, he must not have very much power. He asks a rhetorical question, but he gets a very real answer from the very real and living God. And what we learn about God today is not simply a neat story to be told, but it should lead us to worship, lead us to thankfulness and to personal transformation in our own life. Because when you and I encounter the living God, your life cannot remain the same. So let's jump into this story and allow God's word to impact us by the help of the Holy Spirit. So go ahead, grab your Bible and open up to Exodus chapter 7. As I said, we're going to go through about four chapters today. But to start, we're going to read the first few verses of Exodus chapter 7 to set this story up. Starting in verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. These few verses really set up all that's about to happen in these next few chapters. God has sent Moses and Aaron again to tell him to let God's people go. But this inter, in this initial interaction, this second interaction that Moses and Aaron have with Pharaoh, we learn some key things. Let me read verses 3 through 5 again. It says, But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, that I am Yahweh. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Right away, there's an interesting reality that's brought to our attention. God says he will harden Pharaoh's heart. But as we look throughout chapters 7 through 10, we also see that it says that Pharaoh hardens his own heart. And then we go back and see that it says God hardens Pharaoh's heart. So what's going on here? We need to understand a few things. What we see here in these few chapters is a picture of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. God is sovereign over all things, and at the very same time, Pharaoh is responsible for his disobedience and false worship. As one commentator says, the biblical authors uphold firmly and fully God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Affirming the authenticity of human decisions, yet seeing God's sovereign hand behind all that occurs. 
We have to understand that God does not make Pharaoh evil, but in his sovereignty, he gives Pharaoh over to his sin, as Romans 1 says. They may think, well, this isn't fair. But in Romans chapter 9, Paul tells us this isn't about fairness. What it is about is about the reality of our sinfulness absent of God's transforming mercy. In Romans chapter 9, Paul says God will have mercy on whom he has mercy. And he uses Pharaoh as an example. Pharaoh is responsible for his sin. See, I think when we look at this and question God's fairness in this, we have to remember it's not as if God is hardening a good person. This man is an idolater, a worshiper of false gods who makes himself a god. But see, this is not the main point of the text, and so it's not the main point of this sermon. But it's important for us to see this. Because God says he will harden Pharaoh's heart in his divine sovereignty for a reason, for a purpose. So what is that purpose? God says he's going to do many signs and wonders in Egypt and Pharaoh will continually not listen. But God will rescue his people out of slavery in Egypt. And so the purpose of him hardening Pharaoh's heart, he tells us in the beginning of verse 5, is so the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. Pharaoh, you asked who is Yahweh. Now I'm going to show you and your people who the I am is. I'm going to show you that I am the God of Israel and the God of all creation. See, Yahweh clearly identifies himself as the God of the enslaved. But for for, for Pharaoh, he would have laughed at the idea of a God of slaves having any power or authority. And so when Moses comes to make this request, he dismisses it. He thinks it's ridiculous. He doesn't take it seriously. And what comes next in these few chapters is the unfolding of 10 dramatic plagues on Egypt. There's a slow working of these plagues and they put on display for us that it must be, it has to be none other than Yahweh who sets the people of God free. It's nothing else besides his divine work, his divine actions. And it unfolds in epic fashion. It wasn't hard for them to make a movie many years ago about the Ten Commandments, about Moses doing all these things because this plays out like a movie. It's an epic story. But before all these plagues begin, God gives a prologue to the plagues. In chapter 7, verses 8 through 13, it says this. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret acts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Right away, we see this showdown of power. Pharaoh says, prove yourself. You say that your God has sent you to demand that that your people be set free. Well, prove yourself. Prove your God's power by doing something miraculous. So Aaron performs the sign that God has called him to, told him to. He throws down his staff, and his staff turns into a serpent. But Pharaoh says, oh, really? That's what you got? And so he calls his magicians to come, and they perform the very same sign. 
It may be sleight of hand. It may be by demonic power, but whatever it is, it is false. More importantly, though, what's going on here is this building tension. See, the magicians of Egypt are like priests in Egypt, serving the many gods that are all over Egypt that many of the Egyptians believe in and worship. And Pharaoh himself is a worshiper of these gods. He will not listen to Yahweh because he thinks and believes his gods are better, are stronger than the God of the enslaved. And so with this, the plagues commence. I want to walk through the first nine plagues this morning, and we're going to walk through them fairly quickly, highlighting a few details here and there, because I think there's an overarching principle and point to all of this. The first plague begins in chapter 7. Verses 14 through 17 say this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am Yahweh. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. God tells Moses and Aaron to go back to Pharaoh once again, telling him that Yahweh says to let his people go. But he says to let them go for a reason. He he says, let them go so they can go serve me, so they can go worship me. But because you have not obeyed, I will turn the Nile, your treasured and important river, into blood. For what reason? Why would God do this? He says, so that you may know that I am Yahweh, that I am the I am. And so Aaron raises his staff. He strikes the water, turning it into blood. But once again, something interesting happened. The magicians are able to replicate this act in some way. And so Pharaoh's heart remains hardened. He will not listen to them. So another plague comes. Chapter 8 Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says Yahweh, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. And this pattern repeats. Moses goes in, says, let God's people go. Yet let Yahweh's people go so they may serve him. They may worship him. And if you refuse, then your land is going to be covered in frogs. Pharaoh refuses and the frogs come And cover all the land of Egypt. But again, verse 7 of chapter 8. The magicians did the same by their secret arts. And made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. But then something interesting happens here. In verse 8 it says, Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with Yahweh to take away the frogs from me and from my people. And I will let the people go to sacrifice to Yahweh. See, Pharaoh's magician priest by some way either again by sleight of hand or by demonic power, are able to make these frogs appear, but they have absolutely no control over them. Pharaoh doesn't go to his magician priests to ask them to stop these frogs in the land. He calls Moses and Aaron and asks them to go to their God to stop the frogs. So Moses says he will pray for God to take the frogs away, but Moses asks a key question. He says, when do you want me to pray for this? 
And and Pharaoh says, tomorrow, ask God tomorrow to do this. And he says the reason for this, verse 10, so that you may know that there is no one like Yahweh our God. Pharaoh, I want you to know who Yahweh is. I want you to know that it's him that does this. There is no one like him. But Pharaoh doesn't keep his word. He hardens his heart again. And so the plagues continue on. The third plague comes without warning God brings gnats from the dust of the earth. And we all know how annoying gnats and mosquitoes are. If you live in Virginia, you are very aware of this. We are in the midst of that right now. Well, this is a monumental infestation. It doesn't matter how much bug spray you put on or how many citronella candles you light. These bugs are not going away. They are everywhere and on everything. But then something key happens. Verses 18 through 19, the magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. See, these magician priests are unable to replicate this. They literally have no power. So God's power is on display and it's on display in an escalating fashion. So far, they've been able to replicate these things, but now we've gotten to this point. They can't replicate or mimic what God is doing, and they get this. They go to Pharaoh and say to him, essentially, you need to pay attention to this. This is God doing this. You you should listen to what's going on here. But verse 19 goes on to say, Pharaoh hardens his heart again. He does not listen. The fourth plague comes. Verses 20 and 21 of chapter 8 say, Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, Thus says Yahweh, Let my people go that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground in which they stand. The familiar pattern occurs again. He goes and says, Yahweh says, let my people go to go worship me. And if you don't, then I'm going to send this plague of flies on you as if gnats and mosquitoes were not bad enough. But in verse 22 and 23, we see that the people of Israel do not experience the flies. God says, I will send it on the people of Egypt, but not on my people. I want you to know, Pharaoh, that I am the God of the enslaved and I'm okay with that. These are my people. I identify with them and I am keeping them from this. I am the God of these people and I am the God of all the earth. So flies swarm the land and cover all of Egypt. And once again, Pharaoh pleads with Moses and Aaron, telling them, I'll let you go if you'll just make the flies stop. So Moses asks God to relent with the flies. But as soon as they go away, once again, Pharaoh hardens his heart. The fifth and sixth plagues come in chapter 9. Moses goes and tells Pharaoh again, Yahweh says, let my people go that they may worship me. And he refused. And so all of Egypt's livestock are killed. The livestock of Israel are preserved, but all the livestock of Egypt are killed. And then the Egyptians are struck with boils, painful sores over, over all of their body. And in verse 11 of chapter 9, it says, And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the, Egypt, all the Egyptians. I like to think this is some divine humor. Right? I mean, the magician priests who had so proudly mimicked the acts of God now cannot even come and stand before Moses because of the affliction of the God they mocked. They once come and stood proudly before that, spitting essentially in the face of God to say, I have the same power as you. And now they can't even come and stand before God's representatives. 
But Pharaoh's heart remains hardened. The seventh plague comes. And something key happens as the seventh plague unfolds. God tells us a little bit more of the what and the why to what's going on. Chapter 9, verses 13 through 18. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, at this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. See, God says to Pharaoh through Moses, you, I, I'm doing this so you may know that there is no one like me. I could have destroyed you already, Pharaoh. I could in, the, in an instant set my people free, but I have chosen to raise you up that I might show my power that I am God. God desires for his name to be proclaimed in all of the earth, and he is using this opportunity to make his name known through all the earth. That These stories will be told throughout all of history of the power of God. Yet Pharaoh still exalts himself. You still exalt yourself and don't let my people go. You continue to spit in my face. You asked who is Yahweh and I am telling you, yet you remain hardened. So mighty hail comes on Egypt, but not where Israel dwells in the land. And there's massive destruction. And there's an escalating degree of God's power being displayed. And at the same time, it seems that Pharaoh's response itself is escalating. Verses 27 and 28 of chapter 9 says, Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. Yahweh is in the right and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with Yahweh, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go. You shall stay no longer. Pharaoh appears to acknowledge his sin before Yahweh. Perhaps his heart is changing. And so Moses prays and asks God to relent of this hail and that, that, that Pharaoh would be true to his word. And he wants Pharaoh to know that all the earth is Yahweh's. But Moses, in the midst of this, assesses Pharaoh's heart. In verse 30, he says, But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not fear Yahweh, our God. And Moses is right. The hail stops. And Pharaoh sins again and hardens his heart against Yahweh. And so the pattern continues. The eighth plague comes. And here we learn something additional to this. All the power of God, it's not just to the display for the Egyptians, but also for Moses and Israel. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 10 say, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am Yahweh. This is not just for the Egyptians. It's not just for Pharaoh. The people of Israel have a front row seat to the power of God, to the lordship of God, as he crushes, crushes the idols of Egypt right before their very eyes. This is for all people to learn from. So God brings ravishing locusts on the land to destroy all plants that are still alive after the hail. 
And everything is destroyed, yet Pharaoh still has a hard heart. And then we get to the ninth plague. And the ninth plague is a culminating, a culminating plague. Darkness falls on all the land for three days. It seems that the very creation itself is unraveling before their eyes. Things are seeming to be almost decreated throughout all of these plagues. And it culminates in this one as we see darkness and chaos essentially come on the land. It reminds us of the very beginning Before God said, let there be light, it was darkness and chaos. See, the land of the people that worshiped the sun are plunged into darkness. Nothing can match this. The sun God, who really is no God, has no power over the God who made the sun and blocks its light. So Pharaoh manipulatively seems to relent, but in the end, he hardens his heart again And all the interactions between Moses and Aaron and Pharaoh come to an end here. But there's a declaration that a final, decisive act of God will come against Egypt. God still has one more thing that he wants to do before his people will be set free. And we'll talk about that next week. But what do we learn from all this today through these first nine plagues? What's the purpose and principle that we should gather from these first nine plagues? What we should learn from this is that Yahweh is the one true God and the only one worthy of worship. Both by the Egyptians and by Israel, there is no other besides Yahweh. And over and over and over again, the word of the Lord is to let my people go so they can go and worship me. So they can serve me. See, Egypt had many gods and Pharaoh worshipped all of them, but they were all false gods, dead idols with no power. And so God shows through the plagues his power over all the idols of Egypt. See, his plagues are targeted attacks on the many gods of Egypt. He crushes them all. They have no power. He's making a definitive declaration in response to the sin of Pharaoh and his flippant question, Who is Yahweh? And he does this by showing that he has more power than the most mightiest, the biggest, largest king in all of the land and over all of the Egyptians. God, that is who Yahweh is. And in the midst of the destruction of these idols, he leads his people to freedom, to worship him, to set them free from their slavery. As one pastor says about the book of Exodus, he says the liberation The book of Exodus promises is the merciful liberation from the falsehood of idolatry to the truth of worshiping the one true God. God uses Pharaoh's rebellion to prove God alone has the power to rescue Israel and God alone is worthy of all worship. But in the midst of this, we also learn something about the heart of man. Pharaoh is the very picture of an unbelieving person. A person who's determined not to listen to God, not to bow down to God, and worships anything and everything except God. As one commentator says, Pharaoh will not say yes to God, which is the definition of a hard heart. See, apart from the transforming grace of God, a person is left to choose what they want most, which is never God. But this is not a story with a fable-like piece of advice To be like Moses, not be like Pharaoh. This is a story about God, about who he is, his power, his devotion to his people, his justice, his faithfulness, that he is Lord over all. This is a story about worship. 
Who is like Yahweh? There is no one like him. He alone deserves all worship. This is about lordship. Who is Lord? It's none but Yahweh who is Lord that we should follow in obedience in every part of life. But if you and I are going to ask, what does this have to do with us right now? We have to first understand who this God is. And then look at our own life and see what place this God has in our life, holds in our life right now. See, when we understand who Yahweh is, when we see his power on display like this, that he is the Lord of all creation, we should respond in worship. But the problem is every last person for all time has a continual worship problem. We elevate other things, even good things, to be ultimate things in our life. Instead of giving full devotion to Yahweh, at best we split it between several things, and at worst we reject him outright. All of humanity has been created in the image of God. The people of Israel are created in the image of God. The people of Egypt are created in the image of God. Pharaoh is created in the image of God. Moses is created in the image of God. And you and me are created in the image of God. And as image bearers of God, we are called to advance God's glory. But as we've seen many times throughout this series so far, we have rebelled against our role as glory advancers and have become glory stealers. This is Pharaoh's problem. He desires all glory and praise. He wants to be worshipped. But it's our problem too. But as we've seen in Exodus 7 through 10, Yahweh does not share his glory. See, we are a lot like Pharaoh and the Egyptians here. We think we are our own Lord. We think we are the God of our own life. And at times we, we split our worship between ourselves and other lesser gods that we elevate and worship in our life. We think things like, what right does God have to tell me how to live anyway? I'm my own person. I can do things my own way. I acknowledge that God exists, but I want to be in charge of my life. Why does God care so much about the details of my life? This is just one little sin. It's not that big of a deal. Doesn't he have more important things to care about than what's going on in my life? Why does he care about this part of my heart? But the reality is that we often want God to do certain things for us. At the end of the day, we want him to do things for us, but we don't want to live under his lordship. We don't want to give him all worship. But as another commentator says, God will not be defined by our preferred terms. We don't tell God who he is. He tells us who he is. See, Yahweh crushed the idols of Egypt, which led to the freeing of his people. And he is still in the business of crushing idols and leading his people to freedom. He wants all of you. He wants your whole life, your whole heart. He wants all of you, every aspect of it. And the consequences of our glory stealing is eternal death and separation from the God who we've not sought to worship, but have rebelled against. But here's the good news for every single person in this room and in this city. God has definitively and with finality shown his power over all idolatry. But instead of crushing you, the idolater, instead of crushing you, the one who worships other things besides God, he crushed his one and only son, who became a substitute for you. Jesus went to the cross to bear the righteous wrath of God for our idolatry and false worship. He died in our place 
and rose again from the grave to crush our sin and to crush death, which is the result of our sin. Pharaoh is a picture of a man with a hard heart. And all of us have had a hard heart toward God. See, the heart is the center of a person. It's where our worship comes from. It's the, where the motivational structures of our life exist. Everything we think, say, and do is an overflow of the reality of our heart. And when it's hard, it does things only for self, to make glory for ourselves, and not to give glory and praise to God. But Christ has come, and Christ comes to change our hard hearts by giving us new hearts. Listen to the words of Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27. These words are fulfilled in and through Christ. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your impurities, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Coming to know God. Not know about God. Coming to actually know God is not solely a matter of your mind. It's the reality of a transformation of your heart. God says you have a hard heart and in my grace I'm going to remove that and give you a new heart to be able to follow me, to worship me fully. And so all of us, every last person is in need of a new heart to be set free from the captivity and bondage of idolatry. But Jesus says to you and me in Luke chapter 4, quoting from Isaiah 61, that he has come to set captives free. Sojourn, the God of the enslaved is the God who frees. He's the God who frees. And if you are in Christ this morning, you are not captive to your sin. If you are in Christ this morning, you are not captive to your idolatry. Jesus has set you free from that. You can walk in freedom because he's given you a new heart. But the reality of our life as we continue on in this life until Christ returns or calls us home We have to continue to see the idols of our lives destroyed because the reality is we are still tempted to give our worship to something else. We still have this divided nature where we want to continue to worship other things besides God. The remnants of and familiarity of our glory-stealing selves remains. So how do we identify idols in our lives? There's several ways that we could do this, and there's just a few thoughts for you to think about to assess your own heart. You can ask yourself this question and assess your life in this way and say, if I lost blank, if I lost blank, I don't think I could go on. What's in that blank for you? Is it your kids, your job, your spouse, your stuff? You said, if I lost these things, I couldn't go on. I couldn't endure. Not saying it wouldn't be difficult or hard, but what fills that blank for you? When you live and make decisions based solely on the hope of obtaining something or maintaining something, that can be an indication of an idol in your life. For me, as I think about my own life, the thing that comes back to that, that I think that I have anxiety that comes up in life over when I want to obtain or maintain something is just our own finances. Worrying about that, being concerned about that, that I have some arbitrary number in mind that my bank account needs to be at, And when it's not where I want it to be, I find myself getting anxious, which when I dig a little bit deeper, the real idol in my life is that I want to be in control of all things. 
Is that not the chief idol of all of our lives? Control? Think about why you're anxious. Think about why you have pride. Why you're lazy at times. Why you're self-righteous. Why you are angry. It's because you desire to be in control. You desire to be God. But over and over again, God graciously reminds us that you are not God. There is only one. And he deserves all worship. Another question you can ask yourself is what consumes your thoughts the most? What consumes your thoughts the most? What consumes what you pray about the most? Because even in our prayer, we can have indications of our idolatry. We go to God for something, but not go to God for him. As one commentator says, who we are is determined by who or what we worship. So what are you worshiping? Are you giving lip service to the praise of Yahweh or is he, and is he Lord of every aspect of your life? Is all of your heart bowed down to him or are you reserving some small part of it for yourself? Again, saying, God, I'll give you this part of my heart and my life, but I want to hold on to this thing. See, when we know that God alone deserves all worship and that God alone is Lord and that God alone in his grace crushes idols, what that means, what that leads us to is that we must be people who repent of our idolatry. And Romans 2 tells us it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. Second Peter chapter 3 tells us that in God's patience, he longs for all to reach repentance, to obtain repentance. He is patient with you, calling you to repentance. We must be a people of true repentance and true faith. It's the remedy for our idolatry. When we are truly repentant and place our faith completely and wholly in Jesus to change us and transform us, it crushes the idols of our life. See, repentance and faith are the, are the beginning of our restoration and reconciliation to God. And they are also the ongoing spiritual disciplines of a restored and reconciled life. We never move past repentance and faith. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said all of the Christian life is one of repentance. We should continually come back to it over and over and over again as we see this idolatry pop up in our lives. But see, I think we can learn something from Pharaoh in the midst of this. It's interesting that Pharaoh goes to Moses various times and, and asks him to pray for him. And even at times acknowledges his sin. But in the end, it shows us that what he longs for most is the end of the consequences of his sin, not the actual removal of it. He just doesn't like what his sin has produced. But doesn't really care about letting go of that sin. Are we not the same sometimes? How many times do we sit in community group and confess sin, ask for prayer, but never truly repent? We pray for the guilt to go away, but not for God to break us and transform us. We don't ask God to crush our idols, to renew our hearts so that we can walk in obedience and not rebellion. We like, we even love our sin more than we love our God. But look, God does not require merely a belief in him, but a confession of his lordship that's made manifest through Christ. Look, God is not looking for you to become religious. He's looking for you to follow Jesus in every part of your life. He wants all of you. And if we're honest at times, we want the benefits of the kingdom of God, but we don't want the king. We still want to be king. But you and I cannot acknowledge God with our lips and then go and deny him with our lives. 
God will not share his glory. And in his grace, he will crush idolatry. We've said this at many times at Sojourn, but it's worth repeating today. Confession is not repentance. Confession is not repentance. Pharaoh might have confessed his sin, but he did not truly repent of his sin. And in this case, all he was doing and all the reason he did this is just to avoid and alleviate the consequences of his sin. There's been times in my own life, particularly with my wife, when I've sinned against her in some way used harsh language towards her or been harsh or, or angry toward, towards her and she is confronting me on that and I know that I don't like the consequences of this. I don't like the interaction of this and so I'm quick to say, I'm sorry. But there's no real repentance in that. I just want to say I'm sorry so we can move on and move past it. I'm confessing my sin. I, I get that I did something wrong but I'm not truly broken over it. And she senses that and says, no, 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 no. <laughs> I don't think you really are sorry. I think you just want to alleviate the consequences, but that's not real repentance. We need to be people who have true repentance, not just confession. True repentance and true faith in the gospel. Recognizing the reality of our sin and asking God to transform our hearts. See, when we have a proper understanding of who Yahweh is, we should have a reverent fear of him. A reverent fear and realize the pettiness and the ridiculousness of worshiping anything but him. But if we're honest, oftentimes in our life, we have no reverent fear of the Lord. We, we approach him like Pharaoh and say, who is Yahweh? It scares me for some of you. That you would see the power of God. That you would know the power of God, yet reject his lordship over your life. It scares me to think that some of you might be deceived to thinking that you do know Yahweh, but his spirit is not within you. Because you never have truly repented and bowed your knee to Jesus. It scares me to think that some of you on the last day will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and say, Lord, Lord, and he will look at you and say, I never knew you. Let me ask you this morning, have you truly repented and believed the gospel? Have you truly repented and believed the gospel? True repentance, real repentance is an acknowledgement of your need for a new heart and a renewed heart. It's an acknowledgement of false worship. It's an acknowledgement of sin. It's an acknowledgement of your need for grace. It's an acknowledgement of who deserves true worship. It's a continual turning away and turning to Christ. Turning away from your sin, turning away from your rebellion, running from that, fleeing from it and fixing your eyes on Jesus. Have you truly repented and believed the gospel? Are you just giving lip service to Jesus? Sojourn, sin is deceiving. False gods are deceiving. Idols in your life are deceiving. Often, subtly so, small things grow and become ultimate things. They claim to have power to promise joy and comfort and security and peace, but in the end, they will always fail you. Do not trust in other gods. In whatever form or fashion they may take, do not trust in them because they cannot and will not save you. They will abandon you every time. Jesus alone saves. When we give worship to anything but God, I think what it's ultimately rooted in is our own unbelief. See, Pharaoh didn't believe God was who he said he was. And so his heart was hard. Hebrews chapter 3 speaks to this. 
Chapter 3 of Hebrews, verses 12 through 14 say, Take care, brothers. Be aware. Be attentive, brothers. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence and faith firm to the end. Are you being deceived by sin this morning? Is your heart being hardened? Is your conscience seared before the Lord? And you just say, who is Yahweh? What right does he have over my life? Let me call you today, submit yourself to Christ. Submit yourself to Christ today, whether it's for the first time or the thousandth time. Submit yourself to Christ today. Amen. we're called to help one another, one another in this. It says exhort one another every day as long as it's called today. In love, we look at one another and we call one another to repentance. When we see someone wandering away, when we see their heart being hardened before the Lord, we go after that person and say, brother, sister, come back, repent, turn to the God of grace who's rescued you from sin and death and false worship. Come to Christ. Man, that's what I long for. I don't want anyone in this room To be deceived to think that something's better than God. There is no one like him. He alone deserves worship in every aspect of your life. And don't walk down that road of deceiving sin. Walk in the freedom that Christ has purchased for you. It's not worth it to worship anything but Yahweh. Romans 6 says we are either a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. There is no neutral ground. So where are you today? Are you a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness? Through Christ, the captives are set free. Through Christ, all idolatry is ultimately destroyed. Through Christ, reconciliation to the one true God is possible. And Paul says because of this, what that means is that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, whether on earth or in heaven or under the earth, at the name of Christ, that all tongues will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We bow to the power of the sovereign Lord. We bow down in humble adoration and reverent fear, not because he's oppressive, not because he is a tyrant, but because he is great and gracious, because he's all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-present, because he is pure and holy, because he is merciful and just, because he is righteous and loving, because he is unchanging and good, because he is God. And as Psalm 115 says, he is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. You and I cannot ultimately steal God's glory. But in faith and by his grace, we must strive to advance it. Sojourn, let's together worship the God who crushes idols and sets us free. And let's go tell of the God who crushes idols and sets captives free. Before you come to this table this morning, even as I close in prayer now, would you just search your own heart? Be attentive to the Spirit this morning. Are there idols, are there false gods in your life right now that you need the Lord to crush today? Would you bring those before Him in true repentance and in true faith, turn away from your sin and turn to Christ as Lord? He is faithful and just to forgive us all our sin and to cleanse us of all of our unrighteousness. Sojourn, walk in the light today. Don't remain in darkness. Walk in the freeing and transforming light of Jesus this morning. 
And as you come forward to the table to eat the bread and drink the cup, may God use it to supernaturally refresh your soul today. That your desire would be for Christ. Your affections would be stirred for Jesus this morning. Knowing that he gave his body for you. That he shed his blood for you. That you might be set free from sin and shame now and forever. And if you're not a follower of Christ, we would just ask you not to come forward and take communion. Because it doesn't mean anything for you this morning if you don't yet know Christ. It's a declaration that we are desperate for Jesus. That we are desperate for him who purchased our freedom on the cross. And so if you don't yet know Christ, we don't want you to take communion. We want you to take Christ today. We want you to repent and believe in Jesus today. And so if you don't know what that means, if you want to talk more about that, we'd love to talk with you and pray with you after the service. But if that's where you're at this morning, just hang out in your seat, pray to God, ask him to save you today. And those of you that will come forward, you can come forward when you're ready to receive the elements and tear off a small piece of bread, take a small cup to drink. And what Jesus has done for you to set you free will be spoken over you. Let's pray. Father God, we are grateful for your word. These are hard things to read about, hard stories to look at. And to see what the real and true meaning is. To see that you are a God who does not share his glory with another. And so, Father, this morning I pray that you bring conviction in the lives of your people here this morning. Lord, I pray that your spirit would do a work right here in this moment in people's lives today. Lord, you bring a spirit of repentance today. Would you turn people back to you? Lord, we long for revival. We long for spiritual awakening in this city. But I pray that it begin in this church. Lord, would you wake up sleepy Christians here today? Those of us that are just going through the motions, that want to give you 90% of our life but are holding on to 10. Lord, would we lay it down for you today? Lord, I pray that you would call people who think they know you but don't truly know you. Would you call them to true repentance and true faith today? I pray there'd be no nominal Christians in this room. Lord, we don't want to claim the name of Christ in name only. We want it to radically transform every aspect of our life. Would you do that work today? And Lord, I pray that as we are just in awe of who you are, your power, that there is none like you, that that would compel us to go out into this city to preach the good news of the God who crushes idols and set captives free, and that you would call people who seem hard to reach, who seem hard-hearted against you. Would you give them ears to hear and eyes to see and bring them to yourself? Lord, do a work in this city. Do a work in this church to the glory and praise of your name alone. We want you to be high and lifted up. And Lord, we praise you for Christ who has come to set us free. Let us follow him today. We pray this in his name. Amen.